This is the KOTO Community Radio News for Wednesday, August 31st. I'm Matt Hoish. And I'm Gavin McGough. In today's headlines, local nonprofits face lodging challenges. Telluride considers designs for Shandoka's Lot L. Binion Park Lottery Looms. And a mountain weather forecast. But first, Kodo's iconic annual events such as street dance, lip sync, ski swap, and our Halloween party bring the community together in a spirit of fellowship and camaraderie. Help keep these beloved traditions going by supporting Kodo during our summer fun drive. Head to koto.org to donate, and thank you. Earlier this year, Sage Martin had to face a painful surprise. She's the executive director of Mountain Film. As the annual documentary film festival approached, they realized they would have to pay about $40,000 for lodging they hadn't budgeted for. Because in the history of Mountain Film, we haven't had to pay for lodging before. So this was the first time that we had to pay out of pocket in that way of purchasing rooms. Historically, all the spots for out-of-town festival guests have been donated. Some of that was local companies providing lodging. That isn't gone, but it's dried up a bit. They're still willing to give us rooms, but it's less. Most of them cut it in half. They also got help from homeowners willing to offer up their space for the festival weekend. But some of those people, Martin explains, have since sold their houses. And Mountain Film isn't the only Telluride nonprofit facing lodging challenges for guests they invite. Ronnie Palomar is the executive director of the Sheridan Arts Foundation, which oversees the programming at the Sheridan Opera House. She says they've had to reduce the number of comedians they bring for their annual comedy festival over President's Day weekend by about half because of lodging constraints. So that's been a difficult challenge. What do we do with our comedy fest? Do we continue it? Do, do we change a weekend to another, to another weekend? Telluride Theater has also seen challenges. Sasha Cuccinello is the artistic director. She explains they try to bring in out-of-town artists to supplement their local ensemble. That used to be easier. We had access to a four-bedroom condo in the village. We had access to two houses in town. We had access to people's housing in their in their houses. And as things have sort of squeezed down in the last four years, three years, those have just gone away. On top of the departure of old homeowners who used to offer up their spaces, there's also been a change in some of the people buying up those properties. Larry Mallard is the CEO and one of the owners of the rental company Alpine Lodging. Their contracts used to require owners of the homes they manage to give six nights a year Alpine could allocate to local organizations. A lot of those owners were second homeowners who spent time in the community and understood the benefit of that. But now... There are folks that are simply buying these units just to rent them. And what that means is it's now a cash proposition for them and they need to make a return on it. And they may not live in the community. They may not uh, you know, really know much about the community. So it's a very difficult discussion when you say, hey, I need to give two nights to the Telluride Bluegrass Festival or the Telluride Blues and Bruce Festival because we like to support that festival. It's real difficult for them to, to bypass you know, a high rate for a couple of nights uh, to support the community. Mallard says as they've redone their contracts over the last two years, Alpine has had to reduce the number of nights they give away from six to three. We were just getting so much pushback on the six nights. 
This nonprofit lodging challenge is another layer of the housing crisis familiar to most people in Telluride and other mountain areas. Many local nonprofits bring in people to share their talents with the community for a few days, weeks, or months. Finding lodging for those short-term visitors has become enough of an issue that several Telluride nonprofits, including Mountain Film, Telluride Theater, Telluride Academy, the Telluride Adaptive Sports Program, the AHA School for the Arts, the Telluride Film Festival, and several others, have come together to raise awareness about it. Here's Cuccinello. Our community is changing, and people who are living here now are coming from New York and L.A. and from these bigger cities and from these cosmopolitan areas. They want world-class work. They want world-class music. They want to have access to amazing movies and art and theater, and we want to be able to provide that. The only way we can provide that is with this lodging help. Education is a big piece of their strategy. Here's Martin. There's a lot of uh, new folks that have moved to town, and I don't know they necessarily know that we're experiencing this challenge. Mallard wonders if local governments could offer incentives to rent to nonprofits. If you discount 50% for these festivals, you get X amount off of your, uh, and again, I'm making this up, but you get X amount off of your short-term rental permit renewal, you know, that kind of thing. Larry Rosen has thought about legislation requiring lodgers to help local organizations. He's the interim executive director of Telluride Academy. The summer camp recently bought property outside Telluride to alleviate some of its challenges finding lodging for seasonal staff. Maybe for say, so, you know, an example could be for every 30 days of lodging um, that you provide, you have to give one or two days to, to this nonprofit or business collaborative lodging pool. Whatever the solution, everyone seems to agree on the importance of Telluride's nonprofits and the programming they provide. It really enhances our community to have all of these events, and I think that that's also what makes Telluride really attractive. I really believe that these nonprofits that are part of this consortium are the fabric of Telluride. I'm not sure that everybody understands the value uh, that these festivals, and, and just as importantly, the nonprofits, mean to the community. Over at Mountain Film, Martin hopes raising awareness will help with the nonprofits lodging challenges. But... In planning for next year's festival, she says they're also thinking of ways to draw on the local community more to bring in fewer out-of-town guests. In one of the town's major up-and-coming developments, Telluride is working to develop a large parking garage on the Shandoka parking lot. What is now known as Lot L will go from a concrete expanse holding 330 cars to a multi-story garage with around 960 spots. The parking structure will then be wrapped in various residential, transit, and commercial spaces. At a Wednesday presentation before the Telluride Housing Subcommittee, architects from the firm Cushing Terrell shared two main design schemes. Project manager Laura Doherty explains that the difference is a matter of building height and expanse. The exercise that we're doing now is, I like to think of it as, our program is like a lump of Play-Doh. <laughs> if you can imagine that, you can either squish it down and it spreads out and takes up more of your site. So that's our option A. And then if you begin to smoosh it together and make it taller, you buy more footprint, you buy more space on the ground. Architect Randy Rose explains it by adding a fourth floor there will be more flexibility in the design to add green space in the Shandoka neighborhood. This design is known as Concept B. This is a four-level 
concept, except we're able to reduce the size of that footprint. What that does is it really opens up base dramatically. These potential uses like playgrounds and some other kinds of neighborhood commercial, potentially, uh, and obviously opportunity for some improved river access. All three members of the Telluride Housing Subcommittee are in favor of a taller building with green space incorporated into the plan. They asked that architects consider adding a partial fifth floor to the complex, which could create space for childcare, gym facilities, or other community uses in the development. Mayor Delaney Young asks that architects come back in September with more final designs for a taller structure. I think we have consensus on concept B, mm-hmm. but maybe come back with concept B yes. with two to three options on that, whether it's a fifth level with some replaced parking, shrinking the one side, the west side green space to add a little green space yeah. on the east side, all the things you heard today. Although energized by the design options, Mayor Young warns that such a large building is unprecedented in Telluride. Anyone who's paying attention to this needs to have a really open mind. This is a giant structure for cars that we're going to be putting into Telluride. And I think people need to just be aware. Committee member Geneva Shawnette says the lack of buildable land in Telluride makes it difficult to meet community needs. Building upwards while staying within zoning limits could be necessary, she says. I think it's a big opportunity, maximizing our property for the good of the community. The committee is unanimous in supporting concept B for future design phases. However, a presentation aimed to the public on the evening of August 31st could inform some of their design choices. For more information on the project and to see site plans, visit engagetelluride.org slash lot L. Architects hope to have final designs by December of this year and will update town on their progress near the end of September. The deadline has come and gone to apply for the lottery for Norwood's Pinion Park neighborhood. Several years in the making, Pinion Park will offer 24 deed-restricted homes. According to the San Miguel Regional Housing Authority, which is administering the lottery, as of the lottery deadline, there are 23 applications for the 24 units. But that doesn't mean everyone is guaranteed a spot because there's different demand for different types of homes. Prices in the neighborhood range from $225,000 for a two-bedroom, two-bath house to an average of $385,000 for a three-bedroom, three-bath house with an attached garage. That affordable price is thanks to a novel approach, combining several strategies to keep costs down. With the lottery now only a few weeks away, Kodo is rerunning a piece we aired last year looking into the details of the affordable housing development. Housing takes time. Kiefer Perino knows this. He's been working on one affordable housing development for local workers since before the pandemic. It's been a couple years versus a couple months in the making. Perino is the mayor of Norwood, Colorado. The roughly 600-person town is shaping up to be the first to get about two dozen deed-restricted workforce housing units from a new initiative launched by a local nonprofit, the Telluride Foundation. They're taking a simple but potentially powerful approach, building houses for less money. If you work backwards from a teacher in Norwood, they're making $41,000, they can afford a $180,000 home. That's Paul Major, president and CEO of the foundation. 
can we actually deliver a $180,000 three-bedroom, two-bath, two-car garage home? To get the cost down, Major breaks it into three buckets, land, financing, and construction. When it comes to land, the foundation is trying to get it for free. San Miguel County has donated the parcel of land in Norwood. For financing, a mix of public and private donors have put forth low-cost capital. Finally, there's construction. The first thing that comes onto an on-site construction project is the dumpster, because 30% of all materials that come onto a construction site are waste. They turn out to be waste. To solve that problem, the foundation has turned to off-site construction. Homes are pre-built in a factory and essentially installed onto the site. David Bruce manages the housing initiative for the foundation. He says that off-site building can reduce construction costs per square foot by about 75 percent. And he adds, there's nothing new about the approach. People have been talking about that since the 60s. And one of the reasons it hasn't sort of taken on this effect and, and revolutionized the construction industry the way, you know, uh, Ford assembly line has is because, you know, there's a huge advantage just to you and me going to a building site, bringing some lumber with us, and there's a flexibility to build on site that is actually hard to calibrate and, and line up once you prefabricate everything. For an existing example, he suggests I look into another similar large-scale development called The Farm in Buena Vista, Colorado. So, I do. Micah Salazar, I'm the Chief Operating Officer of Fading West Development. Fading West Development is the developer behind The Farm. So far, Salazar says... They've built 86 houses using off-site construction, and all of them have sold for between roughly $200,000 and $500,000. And he notes, even though they're not deed-restricted, a little more than 80% of the people living in them are part of the local workforce. We really can't build them fast enough at this point. The best way that I can put it is, is the impact has just been huge. Duff Lacey is the mayor of Buena Vista. He says he hasn't heard anything negative from his constituents about the farm, but he notes the factory-built units are still a couple hundred thousand dollars. So he thinks they're not a cure for all the region's housing challenges, but they fill a void. There's still a gap, but this is definitely taking care of a sector that is looking for housing. Of course, there's no guarantee the Telluride Foundation homes will sell as quickly as the Buena Vista ones, but Major is confident. A study found there's pent-up demand for over 30 affordable homes in Norwood more than the foundation plans to help build. They're also working on similar projects in nearby Nucla, Ridgeway, and Uray. All in all, the projects could result in over 100 new deed-restricted homes for local workforces. And if all goes well, more could follow. We see this as an opportunity to uh, potentially see this work in a pilot format and potentially scale this in other parts of rural Colorado that need uh, new housing construction. Rick Garcia is the executive director of the Colorado Department of Local Affairs. He says once they see one or two of the projects completed and homeowners moving in, the state is prepared to help other communities take a similar approach. The Telluride Foundation hopes to break ground in Norwood next year and have folks moving in by fall 2022. The lottery for Norwood's Pinion Park neighborhood will take place Friday, September 16th, with move-in slated for early November. Even though the lottery deadline is passed, SMRHA will continue to accept Pinion Park applications for placement on a reserve list. Those applications will not go in the lottery, but will be used to allocate any remaining homes available after the lottery on a first-come, first-served basis. Since KOTO first aired this piece, 
Rural Homes, the nonprofit developer behind Pinion Park, has also received approval from the town of Ridgeway to build 14 deed-restricted homes using a similar approach to the Norwood neighborhood. The aim is for those homes, which will also be allocated by lottery, to be ready for move-in by this December. Drivers heading south next week be warned. The Colorado Department of Transportation will be finishing a bridge repair on the U.S. Highway 160 bridge over the Animas River in Durango. The repair, CDOT says, will increase the life of the bridge and improve the road surface. The Transportation Department notes crews will try to keep traffic moving through the work zone, but significant delays can be expected at the U.S. 160 and U.S. 550 intersection. Travelers should allow extra time and seek an alternate route if possible. The Durango Bridge work will run daily from Tuesday, September 6th through Friday the 9th from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. There's few better feelings than giving a beloved accessory a second life. And if you can also help raise money for a good cause, all the better. The San Miguel Resource Center is collecting used and unused purses for their annual Clutch for a Cause fundraiser. SMRC is accepting purses on workdays through Wednesday, September 14th at their office on South Pine Street. On Thursday the 15th and Friday the 16th, they'll go on sale at Two Skirts, with all proceeds supporting survivors of domestic violence and sexual assault. Seven water utilities from across the Colorado River Basin released a new commitment for conservation last week. But their efforts will be a small part of helping a region strained by drought and overuse. Nearly 80% of water from the Colorado River is used for agriculture. John Berggren is a water policy analyst with Western Resource Advocates. Everyone has to contribute, no matter how big or how small. If in only once everyone contributes, will the numbers add up? Their plans aim to incentivize reductions in home water use, cut back on grassy lawns, and bring in more efficient appliances. The utilities serve cities such as Las Vegas, Los Angeles, and Denver. Republicans trying to oust a state senator who left their party to join the Democrats are cheering a legal opinion that will likely boost their campaign. As KOTO's Scott Franz reports, officials say the recall effort will be based in a new district that leans more Republican. Senator Kevin Priola currently represents a toss-up district between Denver and Greeley. But because of redistricting, he'll be leading a more conservative one next year that includes parts of Weld County. It wasn't immediately clear which district the recall effort would happen in, but the Secretary of State's office cleared that up Monday by ruling it will be based in the newer, more conservative one. Michael Fields is organizing the recall. He says the decision gives more Republicans a voice. Senator Priola has been out of step with his district on, uh, you know, raising fees and taxes, the gas tax, the taper refund checks. He tried to take those away a few years ago. Recall supporters must gather about 18,000 signatures to trigger a special election. If it happens, it would cost $200,000 and the outcome could determine which party controls the Senate. I'm Scott Franz. The federal program that provided free school lunches for all students has now finished. 
School districts around the country are trying to figure out how to provide nutrition for kids that don't qualify for free or reduced lunches and whose families are struggling to pay. For Rocky Mountain Community Radio, KZMU's Molly Marcello has more on what school officials in Moab, Utah are doing. Nutrition advocates say the nationwide free lunch for all program helped address food insecurity and childhood hunger for millions during the first two years of the pandemic. But that's going away this school year. Congress has decided that that is no longer a priority. So this year we're going back to the traditional model for school lunches um, where we have free, reduced or full pay students. Grand County Schools Director of Child Nutrition Alicia Packard. The federal waivers providing free breakfast and lunch for all expired, and Congress chose not to renew them. Now families who are above certain federal income thresholds will again have to pay for their children's lunches. And experts say that can be tricky in Moab, where the federal income thresholds don't necessarily reflect the cost of living here. Jeremy Spaulding, Grand County Schools Community Coordinator. I mean, we all know that people in this community um, still struggle to make ends meet. Wages have gone up considerably in town. The other side of it is that rents have also gone up considerably over the last few years. According to the Utah Department of Workforce Services, the average monthly wage in Grand County has gone up by about $500 in the last two years. That could be enough to bump a family from qualifying for free and reduced lunch, but not enough to comfortably afford the meals. Packard says the schools kind of need to fill in this gap of those families who have always qualified before but are now making $20, $21 an hour and don't qualify. The challenge is that they're not making enough to live comfortably. And so adding the extra expense of school lunch is still a considerable expense over the course of the year, especially not having had to budget for that for the last two years. The Grand County School District has no plans to increase meal prices this year. They're the same as they were in 2020, about two to three bucks per meal, but this cost can add up. At full price, school meals run about 450 to over $600 for one student for the entire school year. We've already had one parent reach out to us. This person has four kids in school and doesn't qualify. Um, and that burden is going to be about $2,000 over the year. I mean, that's a, that's a high cost. Okay, you. you're going to get a breakfast here, and then you're going to go to that window and get your lunch in a box, okay? In the early days of the pandemic, cafeteria workers boarded buses. They were dropping off free meals to children at different locations around town. That free program had a high participation rate here in Grand County. And when schools returned to in-person learning, they saw 70% of students continuing to eat free lunch. For Packard, this was an absolute dream. I cannot tell you how big of a blessing having free lunch is. Free lunch is awesome. Um, <laughs> I think it, it really relieves pressure on our families. I mean, you have so much other things to think about, like do we have shoes and pencils and all of this stuff for your kids? And to not have one more thing to think about, did I send my kid with lunch money today? Is my kid going to eat lunch today? Like... To not have to think about that is huge. And to be able to fill that gap for the last two years has been absolutely phenomenal. And Packard expects the return to the old way of doing things will be a bumpy transition. She's worried because she remembers what it was like before. I've heard students in the past say, oh, well, my mom doesn't think I should eat lunch today because we can't afford it. 
And that's a that's a really tough relationship to have to impose on students and their parents. School district representatives say they will never turn away a student who is hungry. But Packard is concerned more families are going to experience these difficult dynamics. They first have to get used to paying for their child's meals again, and many may find out they no longer qualify for free and reduced lunch. This puts the schools in a tough position. The Grand County School District has set up a donation fund to pay for any student's outstanding meal balance. They're asking for community help to pay for kids' lunches. So it's kind of a scary it's kind of a scary place to be. And Moab might not be alone here. There are plenty of communities where wages may have increased, but housing costs might be double or triple the national average. Here's Spalding again. We know that districts in St. George have a similar sort of style to we do. Maybe in areas like Park City and those tourism-based districts, wages have gone up to reflect um, worker shortages within tourist areas. And so we're going to see the same problem in some areas of the state. And I think that we're going to see that across the West in areas that look like we do. Before the pandemic, Spalding says about half of Grand County students qualified for free and reduced lunch. They expect much less to qualify now. But they need families to apply to know for sure. They're trying to gather data so they can help change the standard. So if we encourage parents to sign up for this and we can show a difference from you know two years ago to now uh, district-wide, we can show that the program isn't really working the way that it's set up. And eventually we could potentially petition the state to say this doesn't work for Utah and it doesn't work for our tourist community, um, where the wages have to be at a certain level for people to be able to even work here. Eligibility for free and reduced lunch not only affects mealtime, it also gets students fee waivers for sports, discounts on college applications, and allows them to receive home internet access at a reduced rate. For Grand County, funding related to free and reduced lunch has paid for student Chromebooks and helped with grants that teachers and administrators apply for. You wouldn't think that one thing would would really have that kind of domino effect, but it does. Nationwide, school food and nutrition advocates want to address this question of free and reduced lunch eligibility at the White House's September conference on food and hunger. They say this pandemic-related free meal experiment has done a lot for the country's students. Advocates will point to studies on free meals helping to increase school performance and reduce behavior problems. Spalding believes it also reduces stigma. If everyone and their sister can eat free lunch at school, it's just what happens. There's no question of, oh, I can't afford it. Um, there's no question of, oh, I've got a, I have a negative balance on my account. There's none of that stuff. It's just you go to school and you get to eat. If you, if you want to have hot lunch, you can have it. And so it reduces a difference between students, which is always a positive thing. Grand County School District has staff to help families navigate the free and reduced lunch application. They say families who do not have traditional housing, so those living in an RV, hotel, or even staying with friends or relatives, can qualify for free meals regardless of income. The National Weather Service forecast for the western San Juans calls for mostly clear skies tonight with a low around 50 degrees. Thursday expects sunny skies with a high around 70 degrees. Thursday night should be clear with a low in the mid-50s. Friday calls for sunny skies with a high in the mid-70s. Friday night expect mostly clear skies with a low around 50 degrees. This has been the news for Wednesday, August 31st. Thanks for listening. If you have a story idea or a news tip, call the news team at 970-728-3206.
we would like to thank everyone who has donated to KOTO during our summer fun drive. A huge thank you to Angela Dye and Bob Mather, Kristen Marcos, Peter Brown, Carl Hauser, Scott Offen, Douglas and Sandy McLaughlin, Tim Torito, Daniel Zemke, Baba Louie and Peggy Lee Redford, JD and Megan Weiss, Leslie and Bud Crane, Brady Casper, Marie Penn, Taylor Smith, Sarah McGeehee, Kathleen Ream, Judith Temple, Parable Hacke, Jane Shivers, Steve Ames, Neil Johnson, Lori and Dave Lamb, Mike Bordonia, Fletcher Otwell, Eric Reinhardt, Adam Mosier, Dave Peterson, Courtney Whistler, Bridget Kenny, David Oliver Smith, Dave Hodges. Thank you all so much. 